Okay, yeah, so let's uh, begin with a word of prayer tonight. Our Father, we're thankful again for the salvation that you have seen to bestow upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit, who has been sent to this planet <clears throat> from the ascended Christ, that that Holy Spirit who generated the text of Scripture, preserved the text of Scripture, selected the canon of Scripture, uh, may illuminate the Scripture to our hearts tonight, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> um, it's been a few weeks here, so I wanted to get uh, go back to where we were on Pentecost for a moment, just to review a little bit. And uh, because we only have this week and two more weeks, and we want to get into the doctrine associated with the event. So we are dealing, of course, with the ascent of Jesus Christ and Pentecost. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. At the point that the Jesus Christ ascended and was there, uh, he sent the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, there were a number of overt signs. And the book of Acts picks up where Pentecost left off. And so you can diagram the book of Acts uh, with two themes. Uh, one theme is the kingdom of God that appears very prominently in the early part of the, that book. When Peter addresses the nation right at the day of Pentecost, and he basically gives a kingdom offer to the nation once again. The Lord Jesus Christ back here in his earthly ministry gave invitation number one. Peter, on the day of Pentecost right here, gives invitation number two. So the nation has officially been uh, addressed that, look, Jesus is your Jewish Messiah. The function and purpose of your nation in history is to bring in the kingdom, and you can't bring in the kingdom without the king. So, you need to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Of course, the nation didn't do that. They went negative here, and they went negative here. And what happened was that you had a remnant of believers, so you have this remnant here of people who responded to Jesus Christ, and then, of course, in the book of Acts, this remnant becomes the seed of something else. Because the nation had not accepted Christ, Jesus Christ could not uh, return to earth and establish the kingdom. And in its place, God, with his strategic and sovereign finesse and history, began something else that was not obvious early on in Acts, and that is this new thing called the church. And it didn't become obvious for years afterward, because Acts says there was Pentecost, and then there were these little mini-Pentecosts. Mini uh, the one Pentecost in, in, verse, in uh, page 36, if you look at the chart, table 5, Remember, we outlined there those mini Pentecosts, and we said that there's one in Acts chapter 8, which is the Samaritan Pentecost, and that was where the Lord worked out an event showing and proving to these Jew this Jewish remnant that non-Jews were accepting Jesus Christ and not only did they accept Christ, not only were they saved by justification by faith, but they shared in the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's something going on here that this, this Holy Spirit that was given in preparation for the kingdom now is seen 
to unify these people. And here you have Samaritans who were Jewish Gentile uh, mongrels who inter intermarried and so forth and uh, were despised by the Jews. And that's why Jesus, by the way, picked out a Samaritan for the parable of the Good Samaritan. He picked out a despised person deliberately to make his point. And then you had the second one in Acts chapter um, uh, 10, and that was when Cornelius, a Roman Gentile, became a Christian. And Peter was astounded then that here a person who was not at all related to the Jewish nation, not at all racially part of the Jewish clan, here you have him also not only believes in Jesus Christ, but he receives the Holy Spirit. And the same thing that happened on Pentecost happens to the Gentiles. So now by the second mini-Pentecost, we've integrated the Samaritans, we've integrated the Gentiles, and finally, in Acts 19, there's that passage where they integrate Old Testament saints in the diaspora. In other words, here you have a remnant of Jews, but they were a Palestinian remnant of Jews, and as the gospel spread through the Mediterranean, they would encounter these little clusters of people who were true believers in the Old Testament dispensation. They were saved. They had believed on Christ in the in, as far as they could believe on him because he didn't have that much content, but nevertheless saved by faith, just like Abraham, David, Joshua, and all the Old Testament saints. So here you have an Old Testament saints becoming New Testament saints. And that is recorded in Acts 19. So by the time you get to Acts 19, you've had all these little events happen, and it's the conclusion of the book that God is doing a new work and introducing this thing called the church. Now, obviously, the person who's central to this whole thing and takes over as the book of Acts continues is the Apostle Paul. So you have Peter involved early on, and Paul comes in. And the interesting thing about Paul is that he was a member of the Jewish, the Jewish nation that had rejected, because Paul rejected right at that point, Paul rejected right at this point, and yet, nevertheless, even though he rejected at both the invitations to the nation to believe in Jesus Christ, eventually God still, in his grace, called Paul. Now, when Paul became a Christian on the Damascus Road, something happened during that conversion process that I believe set up Paul's theology for the rest of his life. In fact, set up a lot of the theology for the entire New Testament. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 9 for a moment and observe something about what happened that day in the Damascus Road. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it came about as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And the object of the verb persecute is what we want to look at here. Because this changed Paul's life, and I believe this set up the New Testament theology. Why are you persecuting object of the main verb? Me. Now, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting believers? Why are you persecuting those who accepted Christ? 
He says, why are you persecuting me? And, of course, in verse 5, we have his famous answer, Who are you, Lord? And the answer is, I am Jesus, whom you are now, present tense, persecuting. So twice in that context, the statement is made that Paul is persecuting me. Now, let's follow the logic here. Let's pull it, pull, un unpack this thing. If Paul... How can Paul persecute the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's, let's look here. Here's earth. Paul's on earth. The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven at the Father's right hand. Now, how is it that Paul can say that by attacking believers here, we'll put minus V for Paul, plus V for these people, because these people have been led to believe in Jesus Christ. So you have these people down here, many hundreds and thousands of them, who are believers. And Paul is going after them. Now, Paul can't go after the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ physically is where? He's at the Father's right hand. So it must have come as somewhat of a shock to Paul that when Jesus, who shined down from heaven, and he's basically having this vision of the ascended Lord Jesus, and that ascended Lord Jesus, who is far out of the reach of Paul, is claiming to be persecuted by Paul. Now, the only way Paul could conclude that this was so, because again, here's the main verb, persecute. Persecute me. The only way that works is if Jesus Christ is somehow in union with those people. And here you have birthed in history the idea of union with Jesus Christ. Here's the heart of the New Testament theology. Here's the definition of the church. And Paul never forgot this. He couldn't have forgotten it because this was the time when he became a Christian. It must have been indelibly pressed upon his mind. It must have taken him, well, it did, we know. It took him years of study in the Old Testament and study of the scriptures and prayer and thinking this through before he became the mature theologian that wrote these New Testament epistles. So that's why, if, for example, we turn to Ephesians and turn to Ephesians 1, he can write this kind of material. He can say the things he's saying. Because he has an understanding that there is a union of some strange sort that goes on between the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his saints who dwell on earth. And that's why in Ephesians 1, you know, every epistle starts the same way. So I'm, I just pick Ephesians at sort of random. But notice in verse 1 the, how he addresses the Christians. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. That's their earthly location. Who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Preposition in the Greek en or n. And that preposition is used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. And it's that sort of thing that we're moving into now to understand that as we go into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit associated with Pentecost. Because if the ascension of Christ was the heavenly origin of the church, then the coming to earth out of heaven, the giving of the Holy Spirit, is the earthly origin of the church. 
And the reason this becomes so important to understand is, is this question. And this is a question that is very vitally related to the Christian life. In the dispensation of Israel, during that time period in the, in the Old Testament, how were people saved? Well, we know how they were saved because in Romans he tells us how they were saved. New Testament saints and Old Testament saints saved the same way, justified by faith. So it can't be that the difference between a believer in the church age and a believer in the dispensation of Israel is a different method of salvation. The method of salvation is identical. So we can say they're saved, they're saved. So there's no difference there. The basis of their salvation is exactly the same. They were saved by faith. Saved by faith. Nobody in the Old Testament was saved by keeping the law. So here we have no difference here. So we're asking ourselves, what difference does Pentecost make then? If the method of salvation is the same, what, what is the whole deal with Pentecost? And of course, it would be next year when we finish and we deal with the rapture of the church, which seems to be confusing today with post-trib, post-mill, we've got the preterists, we've got the pre-wrath people running around, the three-quarter trib people, the mid-trib people. And, it's all, and a lot of them are totally confused about the removal of the Holy Spirit. They haven't, haven't got a clue about it. And I think the reason they haven't got a clue is because they've never thought about this question, the front end of the church age. They can't deal with the back end of the church age because they haven't understood the front end of the church age. Now, when the church is, is removed from earth, the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit begun on the day of Pentecost terminates. I was talking to one of these people the other day and they said, well, uh, the Holy Spirit's omnipresent. He's always here. That's right. He's here in the Old Testament. But something changed in Pentecost. Well, then, this is the mirror image of Pentecost. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit plus Pentecost here and minus Pentecost here. It's bracketed both ends of the church age. So if we're not clear about what the Holy Spirit does here, we can't be clear about what the Holy Spirit does there. It's not true that the Holy Spirit is omniscient and that He stays the same. He does not stay the same down through history. Let's go back further in history and ask ourselves, what was the Holy Spirit's ministry in the age of the Gentiles before He made Israel? How did the Holy Spirit differ in what He did back here? Did He differ because of salvation? Was Job saved, Noah saved differently than Abraham David? No. They were saved and they were saved by faith. So again, there's no difference in salvation. Well then, what is the area of difference? The difference is twofold. First of all, the content of the gospel changes. By this I mean the content of the message that is embraced changes with dispensation to dispensation. Let me illustrate. In the New Testament it's quite clear that we are trusting in the announcement that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. Yes, everybody agrees. In the Old Testament, what was the content that people trusted in in order to be saved? Abrahamic covenant. Does it say anything about the cross and the Abrahamic covenant? Oh, it does by implication, but they didn't know that. So what was it that they believed in all during the Old Testament? They believed that Jehovah was somehow going to save them. 
but they didn't have a clue about the details. So the content of the gospel does change from dispensation to dispensation. It's not the same gospel in the sense that the content is identical. Content changes. And see, here's where Reformed theology gets into trouble because it always wants to make the gospel unchanging, like the way of salvation is unchanging. It thinks that if the salvation, method of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the content of faith has to be the same yesterday and today. And that's not true. Noah, back here, only had Genesis 1 to 11. That's the, only, that's the sheer content of the gospel known to them in that era. Did they know about Israel? Was there a special nation then? Was there any Shekinah glory and an Ark of the Covenant then? No. Were there any special Mosaic law code rules then? No. So, something changed. So back here, we can say not only did the gospel content change, but most importantly is the will of God for believers. What God expected of believers to be obedient in one dispensation is not what He expects of believers to be obedient in another dispensation. In the Old Testament, the saints in the Old Testament had, as part of the will of God for their lives, going to the temple to worship. They were ordered, and they would have been disobedient had they not done it, to go offer blood sacrifices at the temple. Is that true of the will of God for believers in the church age? No, it isn't. So, and even your most ardent Reformed person will, will agree that, well, no, I don't go to the temple to give blood sacrifice. That's Old Testament. Right. So, to that degree, you're a dispensationalist. The will of God is different from dispensation to different... Now, do we mean that the Ten Commandments have changed? Yeah. Paul says all the Ten Commandments are out in the, in the church age. Now, does that mean the content of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal? No, because nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But they're repeated as teachings that come from heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. And the reason that there's a continuity of principle, of righteousness, from Old Testament and New Testament is because of what attribute of God that doesn't change? His holiness. God's holiness is the same from dispensation to dispensation. So, his ethical principles are the same from dispensation to dispensation. But the cultural form in which they take it, the specific details, vary. Dr. Ryrie has said, if you want an analogy of the difference from dispensation to dispensation, think of an administration. You have in the United States a president of one party, he's succeeded by a president of the other party, who's succeeded by a president of the other party, and you have switching back and forth every four to eight years. Now, is there a continuity between presidents? Yes. They, are they, their office is in the same place? Yes. Operate in the same constitution? Yes. Are their policies the same? No, the policies change. So that's what's different about these dispensations. So trying to zero in and what we're grappling with here on Pentecost is we're asking the question, what difference in the will of God and the content of the gospel happened as a result of Pentecost? And the reason we want to ask that question is because the New Testament is specifically addressed to the church age. It is the Old Testament that is addressed back here. And you're going to see conflicts between the two if you don't recognize that one is addressed to Israel and the other is addressed to the church. There are different things going on here. 
best example of modern society is that in the church there is no difference between Jew and Gentile or between racial groups. Is that true in the Old Testament? Was God acting differently to Jews than he was Gentiles in the Old Testament? Yes. Could there have been a believer in Assyria and a believer in Jerusalem and they both believe the same way, justified by faith? Is the will of God for this guy different from the will of God for this guy in his life? You bet he is. One was to function as a Syrian. The other one was to function as a Jew inside their national entities. There wasn't any unified church going on in the Old Testament. There's a complete distinction between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament as far as the will of God goes. The Assyrians, if, if you were living, say, in Baghdad, or that would be Assyrian, not Assyrian, but let's say you were out in, um, in, uh, in Babylon or Kalna, some one of those places out there in the Mesopotamian plain, and you had, you had become a believer to the degree that you knew, in other words, here's the gospel that you would have had, and your contemporary over there in Jerusalem, he had had this much revelation, but both of you had become believers, both of you if you were in, in fellowship with God, were in fellowship only through the fact that in the future Jesus Christ would die for you both. You're over here in the Mesopotamian Valley. This guy's over in Jerusalem. What's the will of God for this guy for his worship? Go to the temple. What's the will of this guy? Go to the temple? No. Not addressed to him. So, the point you want to see is there's different, different areas in Scripture and they differ from dispensation to dispensation. So, when Pentecost starts and we have this formation of the church, you're going to see some stresses. And that's why in Acts chapter 10, Peter's all stressed out about going into the house of a Gentile and eating Gentile food. Fellowship with Gentiles. Yuck. But see, the point is, he's operating as an Old Testament believer under the Old Testament dispensational will of God, which was, don't eat with them. Now, why did God say, don't eat with them? Let's think about this for a minute. Why was God discriminating between believer Gentile and believer Jew? There was a discrimination going on. Why was there discrimination? Because the nation Israel had a mission to perform in history that must remain distinct from the mission and role of Gentile nations. So it wasn't just individuals, it was the mission of the overall nation. That's one of the reasons for the difference. So as we go into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we want to think about this, this issue. What's changed? as a result of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. What new things have happened, what changes have happened from the Old Testament way of doing business. All right, now let's turn um, one, one couple other things. On page 36, I mentioned something that we're going to deal with when we get into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But we want to just review this, because remember, this comes out of the book of Acts. They're talking about it. John talked about it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's this baptism of the Holy Spirit that began on the day of Pentecost. And it's going to be one of the elements that forms something very, very interesting as far as the church is concerned. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many baptisms. It may surprise you. But there's six or seven different baptisms in the Scriptures. There's the baptism of John that was water and wet. There's the baptism 
of new age, of church age believers, and that's wet. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's dry. There's the baptism of fire, and that's dry. There's the baptism of Moses mentioned in 1 Corinthians, and that was dry. So baptism isn't always wet. Baptism is used in other ways in the New Testament and in the Bible at large. But this particular baptism here, this is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it did not happen in the Old Testament. So this is something new, and we want to understand the implications of this. So, one of the implications of the baptism of the Spirit we're going to see, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 for a peek at what this has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Remember, this is Paul writing. He's discussing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that it does something. Here's one of the things that's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Verses 12 and 13. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's, making, he's inviting us to think about the church in terms of what? The design of the human body. See, here's an interesting type, if you will. When God created man in the Garden of Eden, you see, this is something, if you catch this, watch how this totally blows apart any compromise of evolution. If things are really the way they're presented in the public school classroom, if things are really the way the so-called intellectuals that dominate our culture believe, then the form of our bodies is a result of what? what why is our body configured with... You know, two hands, two legs. And why do we have this configuration anatomically? It's a result of chance and adaptation under, under pressure, under environmental pressure. Okay? In other words, the function, we happen to be here in our present body design by accident. Now, the New Testament, or the, the Bible says, we are here in our bodies by divine design that was done in a matter of seconds. Seconds, you say? Yes. How long did it take God on the sixth day to reach down, take a clump of earth, and turn that into a human body? Seconds. And you know, he did it without consulting Darwin. It is absolutely amazing that God knew enough to be able to pull that off. He did it rapidly. It didn't take him millions of years to do that. You know why? Because God is smart. Chance, because it has no intelligence, takes a long time. Again, think of the analogy. If you have a car that doesn't work in your driveway, you don't want me working on it. I don't anything about the car engine. You take somebody as a mechanic and he can do it fast. Now, ultimately, I might be able to figure it out. So I have a certain amount of work that I do in that engine, right? So many ergs of energy go in to solving that problem. Does the guy who worked with the engine and solves the problem quickly, does he have the same amount? Yeah, the same product happens. Which one takes a longer time? The stupid one. And this is why evolution 
and its, its associations takes millions of years, such a process is so stupid, has to take millions of years. And even then it can't do the job. But smart people can do a job and do it rapidly and do it quickly and do it efficiently, so it could no shock that the human body anatomically was designed in a matter of, well, from all eternity, but the human body was put together in the garden very, very rapidly. And as Tertullian, one of the great church fathers, said, when God stooped down and grabbed that dirt from the, from the floor of the garden and formed that human body, you know what he had on his mind? The incarnation. Because the human body is designed to glorify God as no other part of the universe can. God didn't incarnate himself in a dog, a cat, a lion, like the Sphinx. Remember, all your ancient deities were zoomorphic, right? Pharaoh, falcon. Remember Egyptian art? You always see the falcon head and then you see Pharaoh's body. What's that saying? So it is only in the Bible that God fully incarnates himself in a human body because the human body is designed for the incarnation. Now what Paul does in verse 12 here is say that not only is the body designed for the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Son of the second person of the Trinity to walk around in, but this body has another miraculous component to it. The bodily organization among all our parts, fingers, hands, toes, nerve systems, GI tract, all the rest of it, all this intricate body of ours is designed to be a picture of something called the church. And Paul says that the church includes the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Where the word H-E-A-D come from? human body. Look at verse 12. He says, as the body, so is Christ. So the anatomy and physiology of the body is not an accident. It is not a result of some stupid, zero-intelligent process that takes millions of years to perform. It is a result of an instantaneous act of God that is designed with an historic purpose in mind, which is to glorify God and to teach us truths. So that in verse 12, Paul can teach truth by analogy with the body. And one of the things he says is, by one spirit, verse 13, we are baptized into that body. Now that's, this is heavy stuff in the New Testament. And it's very difficult to grasp his point. This is not easy stuff. But the church is a body of some sort that is analogous to a human being's body. And the Holy Spirit has put, when we become a Christian, when you became a Christian, at one time you were not, and I was not, a part of the body of Christ. The instant that you trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptized you into, Jesus, into this church thing. This is not joining the church. This is not going through a liturgy here at this point. The liturgies are there, but the liturgies commemorate this act. They aren't the act itself. So, by one spirit we are baptized, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. 
So he says there's a diversity and there's a unity. And whatever happened on the day of Pentecost, this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing started, it started something new and the formation of this thing. And this is not Israel. This is something altogether different. So it's the spirit baptism, which we have to get into, and there's also implications as far as our life is concerned. If you turn back over to one, one epistle before 1 Corinthians, turn to Romans chapter 6, and you'll see there's a lot of stuff associated with this baptism of the spirit. And we'll get into that eventually, but not tonight. We're just showing you that associated with this baptism is a lot of stuff. And that's why we have to spend a lot of time really making sure we understand what we're doing here. In Romans chapter 6, he's addressing practical issues of the Christian life. And he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By the way, the fact that he has to answer the question tells you that Paul taught grace so that it sounded and would lead to this question. That was the problem after the Protestant Reformation. In the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic Jesuits tried to attack the Protestant Reformers on this point. They said, if you Protestants teach the gospel of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, sola Christo, sola Scriptura, sola Fide, if you really teach that, then your people, you Protestant people, are going to live licentiously. Because if you give people assurance of their salvation at a moment in time, they'll say, huh, okay, I'm going to heaven, so now I can raise hell. And that was the attack the Jesuits made against Protestants. And the Protestants, unfortunately, and this is one of the weak areas of the Reformation, Protestants didn't come right back and said, that's exactly what we're teaching. We are teaching a per that when at the point of trust in Jesus Christ, you're forever saved and you have the freedom to live your life. However, if you, in member of a genuine member of the family of God, and you mess around, there's another little factor that comes up to balance it. Now, what they fail to do is bring this other little factor up. It's called discipline. And God's discipline can be very nasty and very harsh and very painful. But instead of doing that, they said, oh, we, my gosh, you know, people might live licentiously. So they backed up and started compromising and said, well, if somebody does this or does that, it shows that they really weren't a Christian. And it was a compromise. Now, that's true. I mean, someone, you can have false faith, and we're not denying that. It's just that you don't try to use that defense on justification. I mean, come on. What did Abraham do after he was justified? Was he a perfect saint? Was David a perfect saint? You know, who are these people kidding? Nobody is a perfect saint. The point is that they didn't become saints because they were good. They became saints because they trusted that they weren't good and received the legal work of the Lord Jesus Christ's cross. So, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Romans 6 is tied in with this problem of grace and sin. Verse 2, Paul says, May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying it's preposterous to think that if you have become a Christian, that you'll want to sin. Or do you not know that all of us, now he's going to tie this in, and right now we're not exegeting Romans 6. All I'm showing you here is the word baptize in verse 3. 
and I want to show you it in verse 3 because I want you to see the context in which the New Testament talks about baptism. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism and death in order that as Christ is raised from the dead, we shall walk in newness of life. So this baptism not only joins with the body of the church in union with the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, but it does something else. If, it is, if Jesus Christ is the head of the church, what was He doing before Pentecost? He was dying on the cross. What was His exodus from the earth? Dying on the cross, right? Okay, now is in some peculiar way what Romans 6 says, not only are we in union with Jesus Christ as the Father's right hand, He's the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ here, He's ascended, He sits at the Father's right hand, not only are we in union with Him at that point in history, but we were in union with Him when He died on the cross. Now, if you can't understand the union with Christ when He's ascended, it's almost impossible to understand how were we in union with Him when He died on the cross. Somehow, we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. Now, this is in Romans 6. Well, what chapter comes before Romans 6? Romans 5. And what big idea did he introduce in Romans 5 that gives you a handle on where he's going in Romans 6? If you turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now we begin to see something here. And this is, this is where you get in real trouble, folks, if you're not going to take a literal approach to all of Scripture. And people get greasy in their idea and handling of early chapters of Genesis. Here's where you're going to screw up. And it's going to torpedo your theology in a very bad and serious way. In Romans 5.12, he goes all the way back to whom? Adam. And what does he go back to in Adam's life? What event in Adam's life? The fall. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and death spread upon all men because all sin, for until the law was in the world, sin is not credited with us no law. In other words, it wasn't due to the Mosaic law. People didn't die as punishment for sinning. They died, and all of us are under the sentence of capital punishment. It always amuses me. People, I don't believe in the sentence of capital punishment. What do you mean? We're all under capital punishment. Just a question of when we die. That's all. Only one generation is going to escape capital punishment, and that's the generation of the rapture. So, everybody's under capital punishment. Try that one in conversation. See if it doesn't lead you into interesting areas. Verse 12. As through one man, sin entered into the world, not just into the man that sinned. It wasn't just that sin entered into Adam. Sin entered into the world, death through sin, and death what did what to all men? It spread to all men. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, it's got to be a universal cause of physical death. And the universal cause of physical death and capital punishment is the result of our union with Adam. So now we've got a second ministry. Not only after we become Christians are we in union with Jesus Christ, before we became Christians we were in union with Adam and that's why we die. Now, 
people who don't see this will come to a passage like Romans 5, 12 through 13, 14 and so on, particularly university classrooms where the teacher tries to ridicule and break up Christians. And they'll say, see, this is very uh, immoral. This is very unethical. How cruel of God to punish everybody because of this jerk in the garden. How wrong it is to be identified and have our destinies shaped by one guy back there. Well, now, this isn't too hard to understand. Are your destiny and mine tonight shaped politically by what George Washington and the, and the founders of this country did? Their decisions have shaped our lives, have they not? All right. So does the predecessor in history to the successor in history, does the predecessor determine the successor's destiny? Sure it does. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, who was the original predecessor? Adam. And in Adam, with all the DNA, were there any DNA outside of Adam? And here again, literal Genesis. The Bible is careful to say God did not create Adam and then he created Eve. In the sense of separate. It says he created Eve out from Adam. Now what does that make Eve's DNA? Adamic. So Adam and Eve both have and both come from a common biological source. That is not a, a random story. That is not some fairy tale that Moses thought was cool to make up in Egypt somewhere. That is a story that is very seriously related to the depths of history, to our bodies, to our design genetically, to our destiny spiritually, and so on. These stories are very serious and should be taken very seriously and not laughed at and ridiculed. And the people who do that, I'm sorry, they're, they're shallow thinkers. I've really come to the conclusion that people who can act with that kind of an attitude to the text of Genesis are shallow people. Now, they may be very smart people, but in this area, they are not thinking maturely. They are thinking in a very sloppy way, in a very shallow way. So, in Romans chapter 5, we have something that corresponds to the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit, in other words, takes us out of union with a first Adam and plugs us into union with a second Adam. While we were in the first Adam, what were we identified with? The fall into sin. When we are plugged into the second Adam, what are we identified with? The cross and the exodus from this world. Do we feel this? No. This is not a feeling. This is not an emotion. I don't feel anything about the Garden of Eden. I, I don't historically part of it. It's not my memory. I wasn't there. I had no idea what it looked like, except what I read in Scripture. Nor do you. So none of us are connected in an emotional way, in a direct emotional way, with that act. But legally, we are blamed for the fall along with Adam. In some way, we are judicially in union with him, such that when God sentences Adam, he has sentenced you and he has sentenced me. Now, I, don't ask me how to explain it. All I know is what I read here. This is what Paul's saying to me. 
And the baptism of the Spirit is very difficult because we are now put in union with Jesus Christ, who is said to be the second Adam, who now fulfills the role of the human race as the perfect God-man. And this has implications about the life of Christ and the indwelling of Christ and the basis of the Christian way of life and all the rest. All this is, flows out of this. But what I'm getting at is there's something very profound going on here with this baptism of the Spirit. Okay, and if, if going on further in the notes, we talked about the um, cessation. The fact is, when the church formed, all during these early years, the church had the living apostles, and while the apostles were uh, with the church during the time of the founding of the church, all during these, these books of Acts, you had the apostles doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, all of them in here uh, authenticating that a dispensational shift had happened. But, as the book of Acts goes on, these miracles spread out and become weaker. So that at the end of Paul's life, he no longer can walk by, as Peter did, with handkerchiefs and get people automatically cured. It's not happening. So that's why we say, uh, we say there's a cessation. Now, by cessation, we don't mean a cessation that God can't heal people today or God can't do a miracle today. We're not saying that. Cessation has to do with the fact that these special gifts of apostle and prophet with this special authenticating miracles, that has ceased. And if you aren't a cessationist, then you don't have a closed canon of Scripture. It's precisely the cessation of these gifts that shuts down the, the, the New Testament. That's why in the book of Revelation there's a curse on anyone that adds to the New Testament. And that goes for Joseph Smith or anybody else that tries to come up with an addition to the Bible. There's no more additions to the Bible because there's no more apostles and there are no more prophets. The gifts have ceased. On the other hand, if the gifts are really genuinely continuing, let's look around for Revelation 23. Ought to start looking for it. Somebody should be writing it. If we have prophets, if these gifts are continuing, where is the scripture? Where are the perfect prophecies? See, there's a living prophet around who infallibly prophesies, who meets the condition of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Those are the two tests. Genuine prophet has to meet Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Do they? Well, not really. We don't believe in infallible prophecy today. Well, then what other kind of prophecy do you believe in? It's either infallible or it's not prophecy, scripturally. So, I think I've introduced enough issues with that so you can at least see why cessation is connected to this dispensational shift. And we talked about the new covenants. The Old Testament covenants are not fulfilled in the church. So, tonight, we come to page... uh, the page on the doctrines that follow from this area. The consequences of Pentecost, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And for the rest of tonight and the next two two, uh, Thursday nights, we're going to be on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's a neat quote. Um... on page 42 of the notes that I found in Dr. Chafer, who is the founder of Dallas Seminary. And if you just turn there for a moment on page 42, 
I want you to follow me through that quote. It has a little humor in it. But it's so true. For want of extended and constructive teaching with respect to the Holy Spirit, the Christian church is, for the most part, in the same position as the twelve disciples of John the Baptist whom Paul found at Ephesus. Their statement, sincere and free from pretense, was, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Almost every, now watch this, very important statement that follows. Almost every error or disproportionate emphasis upon some aspect of doctrine on the part of a few is caused by the neglect of that truth on the part of the many. The Pentecostal errors, with their misuse of biblical terms and their assumptions, would never have developed to any extent had the full and right doctrine of the Holy Spirit been taught generally in its right proportions. So it's a lack of teaching about the Holy Spirit that has set off and triggered a lot of other stuff in the church. The baptism of the Spirit is often meant in, in Pentecostal circles, if you're not familiar with it, it's looked upon as a second work of, 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 that you have to have after you're saved. You're a Christian, and then later on you have this experience, and that's called the baptism of the Spirit. It doesn't fit the Scriptures, folks. Paul says that if you aren't baptized in the Spirit, you're not in the body. If you're not in the body, you're not saved. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Now, I know where they get it from. They get it from trying to interpret Acts as a norm and a standard. Because in the book of Acts, what didn't the Holy Spirit come secondarily to salvation? Yeah, remember? Samaria, they came up, they were believers. And then the apostles had to come, lay their hands on. So the baptism of the Spirit, in that instance, did follow by a time element. First it was salvation, and then there was the baptism of the Spirit. But what's going on in the book of Acts? How did we say that you have to look at the book of Acts? We said you had to look at the book of Acts as a book of transition where you're moving from the kingdom to the church so you have the mini-Pentecost happening. And you can't use one of the mini-Pentecosts as a norm for theology for the rest of the church age because we're not having mini-Pentecosts. Those were special situations designed to authenticate the founding of the church and tip off people by a dramatic, miraculous, special manifestation that the church was going on. That's why they have miracles of speaking in languages. And, I'm, and the idea that the speaking in tongues and speaking language is some sort of esoteric heavenly language, again, it comes out of a misinterpretation of, Roman, of 1 Corinthians 13. But people, remember we said in the book of Acts chapter 2, we said that the languages there were known or unknown. They were known, right? They were recognized. Not only were they recognized, they were called the dialects. They even had the accent. You know, somebody comes to America and they hear somebody from Alabama talk to somebody in Brooklyn. I mean, that's the way they talk in Brooklyn. Down south, this sounds like a totally different language. And that's the dialect. And the miraculous thing in the original Pentecost was that those guys were speaking not only in the language, they were speaking in the dialect. So, who observed 
that. It was Peter, obviously, and, and Paul got it from Peter and so on, and Luke studied it. And then we said, remember, I made this little point, now maybe you'll see why I made it. In Acts 19, Luke wasn't there. Where did Luke get Acts 19, that, that particular mini-Pentecost from? He got it from Paul, who was there. Now, if Luke is using the word glossa to describe Acts 19, and he's saying that's the same thing as happened in Pentecost, does the word glossa mean known or unknown languages? It means known languages. And who's using the word there? Paul is, not Luke. So now, if Paul uses glossa in Corinthians, what does he mean by glossa? Known languages. So there's no really justification for that interpretation that it's unknown, some heavenly language. Again, it comes about because in 1 Corinthians there's this hyperbolic passage about though I speak with the tongue of angels and so on. But by the way, what language do angels speak in? Think about it. Every time a language speak, uh, an angel speaks in Scripture, what kind, does he come up to Abraham and go blah, 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 blah? No, he speaks to Abraham in Hebrew. Abraham, no problem. He comes to Daniel. Michael talked to Daniel in heavenly language. What did he talk to Daniel in Aramaic? Talked to Daniel in Aramaic. So, I mean, you know, angels apparently know the language pretty well. They went to language class. So, we are coming now to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And page 41, we're just reviewing those, those statements we made about the Trinity. Because remember, the Holy Spirit now is the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, our balance. And we want to start off with our balancing. Don't get this doctrine of the Holy Spirit messed up because you learn about it separated from the doctrine of the Trinity. You must learn about the Holy Spirit as He is in the Trinity. It will save you. It will keep you balanced. It will enable you to understand New Testament passages and the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. So, just to review these points. God is absolutely one. He cannot be divided into parts. He is fully each of His attributes. Two, God is absolutely three. God has an aggregative nature that is eternally threefold, which is itself archetypical of the source of logic and number. The basis of math, by the way. Number theory begins with the Trinity. God's threeness refers to modes of being, not just roles. It's not that. God is God, and then when he puts his working clothes on, he turns into the Father, the Son, of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father do have distinct and preferred roles. But beneath that, they are inherently distinct. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been distinct before creation. Because if the roles, if their roles in salvation didn't start until the fall. So if their roles didn't start to the fall, does that mean that they weren't distinct before the fall? I don't think so. The subordination within the Trinity does not refer to essence. 
there is a, in other words, because we say this sort of a progression from Father to Son to the Holy Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit is inferior to the Father or He has less of each divine attribute than the Father. This is not, this subordination is not one of subordinate essence. It's rather to be looked upon as a team and how a team works. The Trinity can be viewed in one sense. Now, not absolutely, but in one sense. These are the way they fit together. It's like man and woman. In fact, when feminism invaded evangelical circles, there were two famous women who wrote a book on it. And it's interesting that when they dealt with this this issue of role, they insisted that a subordinate role meant what? Subordinate essence. That's the basis of feminism. And so what they did was, and I, I read the book because I wanted to see, I, I said to myself when they, they read that, I said, hmm, this is going to be interesting. I want to see what these women are going to do with the doctrine of the Trinity. So I went through their book, page after page after page, watching for it. Because I knew if they had any scholarly integrity, they must address the issue of the Trinity because in the Trinity you've got the same problem. You've got roles that look like inferiority, but aren't. And their argument was that the way the family's designed, and some families were designed this in defense of feminists, by the way. There is some iniquity there that had to be straightened out, yes. But when they got here, I knew they were going to have a problem. And sure enough, I found it. It's a quote. I forgot the page number. But they got to the point where they had said that the Trinity has to be rethought. Well, then that, you can smell a rat right away. If your, if your view of truth is such that it doesn't fit the Trinity, I think we have a rather basic problem going on here. This is not a peripheral, incidental side issue somewhere. This is right at the heart of Christian theology. So, those are the, the, the main points. The subordination within the Trinity does not refer to essence. There's a relationship among the three persons of subordination from the Father through the begotten Son to the proceeding Spirit. And those two words you want to know because we're, next week we're going to take those two up. The word begotten is used of the Son. The word proceeding is used of the Spirit throughout the church and the creeds. And it's two words that you want to know as Christians. Because you get some cultist that knocks on your front door someday and they're going to pin your ears back because they're going to say, see, we believe the creeds. Jesus is begotten of the Father. And that means that he's inferior. He came after the Father. Okay, the last one, with respect to the salvation of men, the triunity is perceived with both threeness and oneness. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have a distinct role in man's salvation, yet at the same time we worship one God. So, again, we conclude by pointing to the fact that, now I want to take you in conclusion to two passages to remind you that the other year when we went through the Trinity doctrine, I referred you to key passages that referred to the Trinity. Because you'll get somebody that says, oh, the Trinity is never stated in the Bible clearly. And you guys, you can't, you Christians can't show us a passage of Scripture that refers to the, uh, the Trinity. Well, yes, I can. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 48. 
This is one of those uh-oh verses. I'm going to show you two verses, both from Isaiah. By the way, what's the clearest reference to the Trinity in the New Testament? Missions, think of a missions conference. And in a missions conference, what is the verse everybody talks about? The Great Commission. And what in the Great Commission is the clearest New Testament statement of the Trinity? Baptizing them in the name. Does it say names? What does it say? Name. Name. Noun is singular. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clear statement, Matthew 28. But we don't want to use the New Testament. We'll go to the Old Testament, just for our Jehovah's Witnesses friends. Isaiah 48, 16. Come near to me and listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Okay, everything, everybody cool so far? God speaking, yes. What do you do with the last clause? And now the Lord God sent me and his spirit. See what I said? Uh Uh-oh. What do we do with this one? So clearly God is speaking. Clearly he says God has sent him, and clearly he says he has the Spirit with him. There is the Trinity in the Old Testament. Second passage you want to think about, write down somewhere in case you have to use it someday, Isaiah 60, verse 22. Do I want 60-22? No, I don't want 60-22. Well, I'm sorry, but this is not the verse that I want. Um... I'll have to get it for you next week. 61.1, okay. Yes. 61.1. Yeah, you have to go to 60.22 to see the context. 60, verse 22, it says, I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. Now, that's who's speaking. Now, in verse 1... The same person speaking is continuation. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim uh, to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then it says, the Lord has anointed me. Who quoted verse 1 in the New Testament? in a synagogue, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus himself used this particular verse to explain how he understood himself. And people were really ticked when he did this. They got the point. Very uh, non-politic type of verse, unless you really are the Lord.
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and the Lord has anointed me to bring the gospel to the afflicted. So anyway, the point I'm saying is that the Father, Son, and Spirit have to be thought about together. Don't get imbalanced. And that's going to be important when we think about what does the Holy Spirit do for us. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for the salvation that we have and for the exciting depths of revelation that you've given us and how the depth of revelation is so wonderful and so deep that we can contemplate it for eternity and never exhaust it because we are finite. We're limited creatures and you can fill our cup over and over and over again and we can always come back for more because we can never run dry. The well of the truth is far deeper than any of our thirst. We ask this in Christ's name and thank you for it in his name too. Amen. Uh, we have a few minutes. It's already kind of late, so we'll only go for a short time. But um, are there any questions that uh, you'd like to uh, throw out on the floor tonight? We don't. Have, yes. Good, Dave. Now you're taking over as our initiate. <laughs> Some of the flamboyant that uh, you're picking up, that flamboyant TV thing. Yeah. Some of that has died down, but there's still some of it left. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point you've raised about the, much of the uh, television, quote, religious programming, uh, in particular the kind of uh, hoopla evangelism, I call it. Uh, I think the best example of the right way to do it, Billy Graham, um, you never see any of that hocus-pocus stuff with Graham. Uh, he, he's always had straightforward thing, and we can criticize him for, you know, maybe this or that in the gospel presentation, but... Billy has always maintained his integrity, and he's always maintained uh, a decorum there, uh, so which I appreciate. Um, oh yeah, the camera. The
Well, the, the, the big issue, the big issue with all of that kind of activity that you're talking about is that if you kind of ask, back off from all the details and ask yourself the question, um, what comes out at the end of all this? And I think you have to agree that it certainly isn't a clear gospel that comes out the end. There's not a clear understanding that comes out of the end. It caters to uh, an emotional, mystical type approach. And I think we've gone through enough of the New Testament, particularly the stuff tonight. I mean, the truth of the Word of God is so heavy and so deep that it does overwhelm you, but not like that. It overwhelms you in the sense that sometimes you almost despair of ever saying that, well, uh, God, I know you in the sense I really understand what you're doing here. Because so many times his character, because he's incomprehensible and he has so many twists and turns to his plan that it sort of thwarts you. However, bottom line is that a genuine relationship with the God of the Bible always involves the mind. And it in particular, in fact, if we had time, we could go into the epistles. There are passages, particularly in Corinthians, by the way, because that church seemed to have a big problem, um, where Paul says that when the emotional lifestyle, the mystical, the emotional, the subjective lifestyle is allowed to dominate, it actually destroys the perception of the believer. And um, he says, that when you enlarge your, uh, he has an expression, I forgot what it was, but when you enlarge your stomach, I think it's a literal Greek. And the stomach was always considered to be the, the organ of emotion, primarily, I guess, because when you're emotional, and you're, it affects your stomach, it's called ulcers. And the point is that uh, he says, when, when, when you focus on this, you destroy the ability to know Jesus Christ. And it's simply because the Bible always comes to you, not just mentally, it's not just mental. It does have, but the emotions are responding to what it's saying. And that, that's the center of the gospel. The gospel is a message. Think of what the second person of the Trinity is called. What's an alternate name for the second person of the Trinity besides God the Son? It's the Word. In the beginning was the Logos. So, what does that mean? It seems to mean, of all the three persons of the Trinity, which one is an exposition of content? It's the Son. We'll see that when we get into the roles of the Father. The Son, the Father is the source. He's the personal source. The Son is the content of the message, so to speak. Uh, and that's one way of looking at the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is the effects the Holy Spirit is analogous to when we receive a message, what does the message do to us? And that, that doing, the message doing, is what the Holy Spirit does. You see that in creation. When God creates the world, he says, in the beginning it was this and that, and God said. But involved in the process early on in the narrative, who is it that's hovering? about the earth and the waters. It's the Spirit of God. So the Spirit is the one who I always visualize, if you can think of a play, somehow I was, I got, 
this is the analogy that is somewhat used in, in the notes we passed out tonight about Poitras. But if you think of a play, and think of the playwright, and think of the actors and actresses that are carrying out the drama on the stage, and think of the technicians that deal with the lights, with the makeup artists that deal with the costumes and so forth, then if you were to say that what the roles look like, the father is like he is the script writer. The script acted out is the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. And the supporting thing that supports the stage, supports the lights, supports the people, supports the actors and so forth is the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's how they kind of flow together. But I think it's important at this time, because we're going to get into that, that kind of stuff that Dave just pointed out, that is often taken to be, see, that's a manifestation of the Spirit. Got to get the Spirit. And it almost becomes a facetious, uh, cheap, and uh, ridiculous uh, association with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God isn't like that. The Spirit of God, if you think about it, is the one who holds the universe in an orderly way. You know, her spirit's not going like this. I mean, come on. But, but, but that's the that's the that's the a sloppy way we've got it. And people will associate that. They'll say, "Oh, they're really moved by the spirit." Well, they're not moved by the spirit. They're moved by their emotions. The emo- spirit is not the emotions. There's a difference in that. And that if, you, if we don't perceive that, we can get screwed up very quickly in our Christian life. Because if you identify the spirit with your emotions, what do you do when you're depressed? What do you do when you're tired? Now you're going to think that the Holy Spirit is, is less with you because you're tired and you're exhausted and you don't feel good. You're sick. Uh, does that mean the Holy Spirit's not there? So see what happens? When you mistakenly identify those two, you can get, really get tubed because now you, you so identified them that when this goes to pot, then the Holy Spirit must be going to pot, and that can't be true. So, that's, there's a caution there. Any other questions? Yes? Well, yes, in in the degree that there's a book in the Old Testament written to protect against self-righteous discrimination of Jew against Gentile, and that's the book of Ruth. Because there, Ruth is a good example, a good counterexample of a Gentile being absorbed into the Jewish line without prejudice. But in that case, she's living in the land... And in that case, she's trusting in Jehovah. And in that case, she's married into a Jewish family. Under the headship, by the way, of a Gentile or a Jew. 
under the headship of a Jew. So, in that case, you, you've got a, a balance to show people that just because you're racially a Jew doesn't give you the right to discriminate against the racial Gentile. What I meant by discrimination wasn't a cruel social thing. What I meant was that clearly, if you lived in Israel and were Jewish, there was a will of God for you that was laid out in excruciating detail in the Mosaic Law Code. If you lived over in uh, the Mesopotamian Valley or in China or the North American continent, what was the will of God for you? you come three times a year to Jerusalem? I don't think so. Didn't know anything about it. So what was the will of God for them? The only will of God was intuitively perceived through the conscience and whatever remnant they had left from the Noahic Bible. So they were not filled in on the details, nor were they compelled, for example, to be circumcised. Why should they be circumcised? Where's the directions? So, so there was a distinct difference. And why I'm making this point is, is that, that, Mike, is that if we don't get it straight at Pentecost, we're not going to get it straight at the rapture. That when the church is raptured, society reverts back to the discrimination. That's what it means when the church is, is raptured and gone. And you have believers that are both Jew and Gentile in the tribulational period. But the point is, there's going to be a difference between them. If he, wanted, if he wanted to join the nation, the Jews had a ritual of which the Gentiles could join with them. You had to be water, and at least in Jesus' time, in late Judaism, they had to have water baptism. That was what so was offensive to John the Baptist when he required of Jews the same thing that had been, the Jews had been requiring the Gentiles. That wasn't very nice. Um, but you had to take a not nice guy like John the Baptist to do that. Um, the point was that the Gentiles that were in Israel would obviously have to conform to the law code. But if you read the law code, it does discriminate. It's just that in cases like Ruth, you see the heart of it that a Gentile is a believer and a Jew is a believer and they both are believers the same way. And ultimately, they're both going to be in heaven and ultimately both worshiping God before the throne. It's just that the will of God for their lives is different. And it's because of a reason. Israel has a function to perform in history. They have to be the custodians of the scripture. They have to manifest the temple. They have to prepare the way for the Messiah. Assyria didn't. The North American Indians didn't have that role. Didn't have to. So they weren't obligated to act that way because that wasn't the mission for the nation. So there's, there's that difference. It gets fuzzy in some areas, I grant you. But you do want to be careful that you don't make every believer, whether they're Jew or Gentile, in the Old Testament like the New Testament. See, we tend to read back because we live in the church age and everything's nice and even. But don't read that back in the Old Testament because it isn't there. Okay, well, we'll uh, reassemble next week.